0: Amen. I don't know why people choose to stay home and watch the Seahawks play because you know what? It's not looking good this year, but we'll throw up a prayer for Matt and make sure he doesn't do something really dumb like try to run when he is who knows how old now. So I'll be thinking positive thoughts for the Hawks. I love them. Um,. Glad you guys are here. Uh, We're going to begin uh, right away in James uh, chapter 1. 1 seems like it takes a long time to get through just because there's so much in this chapter. So uh, I'm going to begin by reading uh, the passage. We're going to go through uh, chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. Uh, So a little bit of a larger chunk. And the next week we'll spend all of our time on one verse. So this week we got Several. James chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, this is a great chance for you to grab one in the back uh, and you can just uh, follow along. We're going to go through a lot of scriptures and take that with you. That's our blessing to you. Verse 12 of chapter 1 says this Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, and then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, of his own will will he brought, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that he I'm sorry that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is like one of those passages that is just media as can be, and I probably should preach like three sermons on it, but that would just kill you and maybe me as well. So we're going to stick with one, uh, and see if we can address everything that's in here for the last. For weeks or so, we've been um, reading about trials. And some people say that a book, whether it be James or the entire Bible, written 2,000 years ago um, can't possibly have any relevance today, that uh, it's outdated, it's archaic, it's um, not in line with culture, it's even in its description of Christianity, some would say, is just passe. And um, I even heard someone this week, as I spoke with them, inviting them to church, Um, and they said that they would like to go, but their bride believed that the church and the Bible is just full of brainwashing. And I said, oh, there's more brainwashing on TV than there is in the Bible. But that's the perception, I think. And James, for me, uh, is just one of those most real and raw uh, books. And the first chapter of James is one of those chapters, I believe, that you can read any moment of your life, whoever you are, believer or non-believer. And it will still be relevant if you read it. You may not like what it says, but it will be relevant because the fact is we all go through trials. Everyone goes through trials. And it's if you think about it, whatever that feeling you have, that person, that group, that experience, that stress, that hardship, that thing that you want God or someone to take away, right now, or that circumstance that you just want changed or removed, there's your trial. That's it. And sometimes, obviously, there's multiple, but, man, lately, as I've had conversations with, with friends and people in particular in our church, I have run into a lot of people going through a lot of stuff. And the strange thing is, and maybe um, this is kind of a denigration of my <laughs> involvement in church before i became a pastor Um, as a pastor i get it firsthand a lot more than i ever saw before and i don't know that's just because people think that you know you're the pastor so let me give you you know all the trials i'm going through but i hear it all the time and a lot of time and it's a it's a weight that i've not experienced um up until this point but someone loses a job friends i keep hearing friends losing jobs and they start feeling insecure um i hear uh people that are lonely because they can't find a bride, namely guys, um, that they want a relationship. Nothing wrong with that. But people feel irritated. Guys, guys and girls get irritated by an email, by a phone call, by a conversation, by someone speaking something to them and they're bothered or bugged. Someone feels unloved or underappreciated in their current relationship or in their marriage. Someone feels ill-equipped to be a parent. Someone feels a sense of fear because their child, of which there's a family, priests pray for them. Uh, The Tiners, whose young son was uh, two months old, maybe taken down to children's, and they've been talking about having bone marrow transplants. And you're like, oh my goodness. Or sometimes it's just, you know, someone feeling conflicted over a really hard choice. All these are trials. And it's the thing that, honestly, for someone who doesn't have a community, um, and this, was, this has been so prevalent, I think, in my life but in others, is that I can't figure out how people get through that by themselves, those kind of things. It's beyond me. I love verses like First uh, Corinthians 12. The whole chapter really talks about the body of Christ. And it says if one, in verse 26, if one member suffers... All suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. You need people to go through trials with you. And you need people to be able to laugh with them. And I've I've said this before. Imagine having a really hilarious joke and no one to tell. You know, it's like this joy. Like, you want to tell somebody and have that experience. And the sorrow is the same thing. Sometimes you just need somebody. No. A lot of time you need somebody to put your arm around you. Not to give you the answer, but to give you some sense of comfort to say, I know, I'm here. But James has spent the first part of this chapter uh, in a, just a very raw way, I think, telling us what's really happening in these trials, what's really going on here. That a trial is, is more than just really hard circumstances that result from sin or from Satan, but that it is a test of our faith in Jesus. That every trial we go through is a test of our faith in Jesus. And sometimes, let's be honest, I'll be honest, life is both wonderful and horrible at the same time. A lot of the time. Sometimes it's wonderful. Sometimes it's terrible. But all the time, whether wonderful or terrible, your faith is being tested. All the time. In prosperity or in poverty, our lives are being tested. And God is constantly Pushing us, sometimes pulling us and dragging us forward as he matures us in our faith. And James boldly declares, boldly because it's hard to hear, it should be hard to hear, that a person of faith goes through trials differently than someone who does not have faith. They go through trials differently. Differently, he doesn't say it's easy. That's the beauty of it. It isn't like, you know, it's so much easier to do this. He doesn't say it's easy. He says it's hard. But a person of faith sees beyond. They see beyond the chaos that is happening around them to the joy of what God is actually doing to them. How God is shaping them. A person of faith stands firm as his faith rests in a good, all-powerful God who is doing something to him or to her. Even if in the middle of the situation it makes absolutely no sense at all, which usually most trials don't. This makes no sense. Instead of trusting in his own eyes, instead of trusting in my own eyes, I actually pray to God and say, this doesn't make sense. I don't understand this. That's why someone prays for wisdom. No one who understands prays for wisdom. You admit that, I don't get it. This doesn't make sense. I'm about to bail and quit on you, God. And so you pray. And God opens our eyes by His grace so that we may see and we may begin to know and understand not how to get out of it, but how things actually are. The truth of what things are, that He actually has us despite what it seems like. And so at verse 12 here, He's gone through all this trial stuff. Trial, trial, trial. Stand firm. Have joy. Poverty or prosperity. And then he gets to verse 12, and everything seems to hinge on this verse, and things kind of change. And in verse 12, he says that those people who stand the test, those people who stand firm in the midst of that trial, who have faith in the midst of that trial, will receive a reward. And in other words, the ones who pass the test, he says, will be blessed. In verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he received the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And because all of us, we we know this, we read that, and then we begin to survey our lives, present, past, and even think about the future and go, there's no way I'm getting a crown. Because I know I failed some a lot of tests. Okay, If you haven't failed a test here, you're Jesus. I don't know what's going on because I've failed tests in my life. I've failed tests of faith. I've had trials where I have turned my back on God and I've tried to figure it out myself and it hasn't worked out. But when we hear about crowns and rewards, I think we get a little defensive and irritated. I know I do. And it's really rooted in being uncomfortable and maybe fearful a little bit. Imagining and when we get to heaven, God setting up this Olympic awards you know, podium And us standing back watching all the super Christians get their awards and their medals as we're kind of like, yeah, if I would have only passed that test, I might have gotten the medal like Paul up there. Good job, Paul. I mean, you ever imagine sitting in line? You know, I remember making a video once in college about like, you know, the end times and coming up to God and, you know, and line up like 4,326,000, you know, and you're like, oh man, look at my number. And then imagine like, you're standing next to, like, Paul. That would just stink, you know. You're like, Paul, wow, you know, you, like, you were martyred for me, and you uh, you know, did all these wonderful, wrote all these books for me, and you're like, well, this is going to be bad, you know. Because you start measuring yourself. You measure yourself according to one another. We measure ourselves according to what, you know, we have. And the super-Christians are the ones that, you know, they go through trials. I don't mean to mock this, but this is the kind of thing we think about. These are the people that we think, they go through trials and they're singing praises to Jesus as they go through it. And they they just are making these sacrifices and having pains. And the whole time they're like, treasures in heaven, treasures in heaven. And you're like, oh, I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. That's just like, you know, treasures in heaven, you know. And they're like, I'm going to get a crown for this. And you're like, I'm not. Because I just am, am angry and bitter and I haven't passed any tests or haven't done well. And I think that we need to understand something, that God is not Satan Claus. I say Satan Claus because um, I used to do this thing in high school where I had 20 reasons why I thought Santa was Satan. And it was like really fun, but it's just a Freudian slip. But Satan Claus, okay, he's not like Santa Claus, Satan Claus, however you want to say it, with his list, making a checklist of when you pass trials and when we don't. Well, these people passed, so they get... Presence and these people pass, they get coal as they burn in hell. Okay, it's not like that, but I think that's how we might imagine it as we play the compare game and think like, my crown's going to be really small, you know, his crown's going to be huge because you know he's done all these things. And we think about like our crown. And we start doing works based off like, well, I'm going to get a big gem right there for this one, and you, you think that way, and it's actually quite sick. But that's how our minds go because I think we really want to work and do something, and, and get maybe what we're old, owed. And that's the greatness in heaven. Imagining a big crown is the very attitude that Jesus rebuked on the night He was arrested. He's having this Last Supper. He's just washed the feet of His disciples. And He's passing around the, the elements, if you will, for the Last Supper, and they're eating, and His disciples are arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. After the infinite God of the universe just washed their dirty feet. And he looks at them and says, what are you doing? And he rebukes them because they've missed the point. They've missed the point completely. The crown of life is not a literal crown of gold. It is life itself. It is eternal life with God. And those who remain faithful over the long, it is long, and difficult race, if you will, of life, get life. And I believe that those who don't finish the race never actually started the race. Because I do believe that if God puts you in the race, if God started that work in you, He is going to help you and empower you to finish that race. The people who don't finish Who don't get the, because let's be honest, some get the crown of life and some don't. Those who don't never started the race at all. Now, at the same time, I think a lot of us, and myself included, as we look at the race we've run, we have to be careful of getting, um, you know, restful, if you will, on some of the past hardships we've experienced. Remember that lap I ran last year? Really fast lap. And you talk about like victory you had as you live a faithless life from that point on. I also think that we can't despair when we fail one or two tests, when we trip in the race, when we have a bad lap. Okay? I do believe that we have to keep our eyes on the finish line. And Paul talks about this a lot. But faith begins with living a life, and this is what I think James is trying to talk about, with eternity in view always. With eternity in view always. The minute you forget, the minute, the second you forget that this life is temporal, the second you forget that all of this, we're just traveling through here, this is just a speed bump to eternity, is the minute I believe your faith begins to falter. Because you've lost perception of what is most important, and it ain't here. I love what Paul says. Again, it's in Philippians, and it's a great book because he's in jail. And here's his attitude as he possibly is going to die. He doesn't, but he's possibly going to die. Philippians 1, 18 says, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, his imprisonment, will turn out for my deliverance. You think, oh, so he's hoping to get out. That's not what He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart And be with Christ, for that is far better. This tension between, I'd love to be with Jesus, but I know if I'm here I'm working for Jesus, but always thinking about eternity. I mean, do we approach life that way? I don't think that's normal default mode for us. Normal default mode is to think this is all there is, this is the world, I've got to get mine now and work really hard. And there's nothing wrong with those things in terms of working hard, but it becomes to overwhelm us and govern us. And the earthly realm here becomes everything that gives us meaning and hope because we forget eternity. The truth of the matter is, I believe, and this is where you see this verse 12 come to be this hinge between the rest of the verses and the ones prior is that people don't all pass tests. People fail tests. And so the first part, he's like, stand firm, stand firm. You'll get the crown of life. There is a, there's a, a goal for it, but people fail. And he wants to explain why it is people fail. Because with every trial, every trial that you have, small and big, there's a temptation to turn towards sin and away from God. There's always a temptation in the trial. And instead of our faith being grown and we get a deeper sense of love and understanding of who we are and a love for God, we actually begin to turn on God, kind of like a child who doesn't get exactly what they want. Ever had that experience? kid loves you and everything's wonderful and you're like, yeah, turn the wee off. You know, it's like, whoa, what just happened there? I love you, dad. Okay, let's turn this off now. And then he's, you know, demon attack. So I think that's what happens to us. There's always a temptation in the midst of the trial. And the interesting thing about the word trial in here, it's kind of challenging. I think I wrote it in the book there, is that the words trial and test and temptation all come from the same Greek word. And the context kind of dictates whether or not the author is talking about a test to prove our faith or if it's a temptation to destroy it. And oftentimes we don't know the difference until it's too late. Every temptation... this is how I've kind of come around. Every temptation is a trial, and every trial is a temptation. And it's going to go one way or the other. It's not like God couldn't prevent you from being tempted. He could. He could put you in a little spiritual bubble boy action and never experience anything. But He allows us to go through it. And I think every trial is a temptation, and every temptation is a trial. So He's going to go and explain. Here's what happens. Here's why. Verse 13 says, let no one say when he is tempted. We're still talking about trials here, but he's using the word temptation now. I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The one who fails, if you and I fail, we rarely will we admit that we lack faith in God. Rather, we'll start to blame someone or something as to reason why I couldn't possibly trust God's Word at this moment. We begin to play the blame game. And it's exactly what Adam and Eve did. Exactly. When they were caught in the garden. Let me prove it to you, okay? Genesis chapter 3. They've sinned. they got fruit on their face, you know, and they're kind of hiding in the bushes. And God walks into the garden. He says, Where are you? Like he doesn't know. Okay? Where are you? Verses chapter three, verse nine. And he said, Adam, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Shame has come into the world. He says, Because I was naked and I hid myself. I've been naked a long time, Adam. What's the difference? Why things change? And he asks him, Who told you you were naked? How did you ever learn that? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Very simple question. Opportunity to confess and admit. Take responsibility, Adam. And he said, the woman, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And he doesn't even deal with that yet. You know, okay, we'll get back to you. So he goes to the woman, <clears throat> and he said to the woman, "What is this have you done?" The woman said, "Well, the serpent, he deceived me, and I and I ate." <clears throat> we always have something outside of ourselves to blame, and we we it, we kind of think that concept. Oh yeah, yeah, I think I do. No, let's get real specific here, okay? When we fail a test, we always are blaming something outside of ourselves for the reason why. When we're caught, when we just are convicted, we have a justification in our mind. And sometimes we blame, we play the if game, okay? I call it the if game. I like games. Play the if game. Sometimes we blame on a person. If that person had not, or if they had done this, I wouldn't have blank. Or if that situation, if you hadn't put the tree here, God, if I had not that donut there in front of my face that someone brought home, I wouldn't have blamed the situation. Or, start blaming the devil. I went to a super charismatic, I shouldn't say it was super charismatic, I went to a charismatic school and there's a lot of, devil blamers there, and they blame Satan for everything from bad driving skills to, um, like, just all, everything was a spirit. Demon was doing this, demon was doing that. And that's convenient. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I am very, very much aware that there's a spiritual battle, and very much I think we are affected by that and attacked at times, but it can also be a very convenient excuse, much like Eve used, to not take responsibility. But worst of all, we play God. We start saying, if God had, if God had not, if God would have blank whatever, fill it in. And we start to play that game. And I do believe that the beginning of our failure again comes back to a failure to see things with the eternal perspective. And the eternal perspective is more than just, it's the end of a race. It's understanding the difference between us and God. We are a creation. He is the creator. We are broken and finite and weak and incomplete and imperfect in every way. God is not. He is perfectly good, perfectly just, perfectly loving all the time. And we confuse that. Karl Barth, who's a theologian, said some good and bad things. And this is one of the things I really like that he said, but I'm going to read it slowly because it's kind of confusing how we get this confused. He said this, thinking of ourselves what can be thought only of God, we are unable to think of Him more highly than we think of ourselves. Being to ourselves what God ought to be to us, He is no more to us than we are to ourselves. God becomes nothing more than a man like us who can be blamed. And it could be responsible for... Tempting me. And James is like, no. Au contraire. He says, do not, do not ever say God tempted you. God does not tempt. In other words, God does not sing, single you out or me out for an impossible test that we are bound to fail. He does not do that. James says that God cannot be tempted we understand who god is he can't he is so beyond evil he cannot be tempted by evil there's nothing in his nature what i mean typically we sin and we're tempted by evil and james says this later in his book because we lack something there's something we want we covet god lacks nothing what could he possibly desire that we could offer him nothing He is so beyond evil, He is perfect. And He does not tempt. And so, there's no ulterior motive when He is testing us. And when He tests us, it is so that we may pass the test. It is always, no matter how difficult, it is so that we may pass the test and obtain a blessing from Him now and in eternity. If you ever read 1 Corinthians 10.13, you probably have. You could... Substitute trial test, if you'd like, for temptation. It says, no temptation or no test has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful, and he will not let you be tested or tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able, to use James' words, endure it. The escape isn't... Escape to get away from the trial. Escape is he will find a way. He will provide a way for you to have faith and to trust him in the midst of it. That's the temptation. We make, we make our own choices. 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 And the funny thing I was listening to a guy talk about this is that we know when we make them. Oftentimes, let me give you a really simple example because we often ask God to like bless us. We're, Praying for food, you guys to pray for food. I'm sure we everyone like prays for food, and we like ask God to bless our food and bless the food to our body, right? Okay, what about when you're eating like this triple cheeseburger, like bacon thing? You know, it's like this huge gut bomb that is just going to destroy your cholesterol and everything else in your body. And you're like, Lord, bless this food to my body. You know, transform this burger into you know, as it goes into my body. Change the molecular structure of it to become, I mean, that's pretty much what we're praying. Knowing we're making a horrific choice to, to eat whatever this thing is, and then praying that he will bless us, right? Put a hedge of protection around my liver as I, uh, as I drink, you know. It's like, come on, you make choices. Desires to eat and desires to drink and desires to enjoy sex are not wrong in the right context. Those are desires given by God. We have a desire to eat given by God. It's a glorious thing. But it's very easy to begin to blame Guinness for a drinking problem, or the way a person dresses for a lust problem, or the internet. For a pornography problem. Or the ice cream man for driving past my house every single day for an eating or overweight problem. We blame because we don't want to admit that we make choices. And he tells us that we fail the test because we have a sinful nature that we are battling against. And it's a concept that's not really accepted by our culture today. The whole concept of sin is foreign to people. And I think that's part of it. Because we become—I was again doing a little bit of study—a um, culture of of therapy. And I'm not saying therapy is wrong. I think counselors um, rooted in God's truth have done some wonderful things for people. So don't hear me. Don't send me some email saying I hate counselors because I don't. Um, but a culture, our culture, often, for the most part, replaces um, God's word with a lot of man-made psychological labels, and I think the core of it is to get away from the fact that we're sinful at the core. A sinful nature has become somewhat of a myth, like, yeah, I've heard about that, and sin becomes this temporary condition that's fixed by pills and programs and people with PhDs. And gluttony becomes just, you know, a food addiction that can be controlled with better eating habits. And anger is just an impulse disorder that needs management training. And laziness, or the Bible calls sloth, um, is just another illness that, you know, if you just some pills, it'll give you more energy and... Lust is just an unhealthy compulsion for sex that's fixed by a relationship, or good relationship. We begin to justify and rationalize why we're failing tests and basically sinning. And we're not depraved. Don't say that. We're not spiritually dead. We're just sort of sick, kind of bruised, and we can be fixed. And I even heard, uh, you know, that, that guy John and Kate plus eight. The guy's like on TV like all the time now. So every channel, I'm like, oh my gosh, and. He said something quite interesting because he talked about going to therapy with his wife to fix this family that they basically destroyed. And he, uh, he said, yeah, therapy was great for me. Everyone needs therapy. And that's our attitude. Everyone could use therapy. Everyone needs therapy. And I don't disagree that some people therapy would be a fantastic thing. But the Bible says that therapy isn't really the problem. Or therapy isn't the solution, I should say. The Bible says that if a test becomes a temptation and we fail it, it's because the sin within us makes it so. Jeremiah 17.9 is a verse that we should like paste on our bodies and cars and everywhere. And it says this, and we don't believe this. We actually don't believe this at our core. Which probably is why... It's so true. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so beginning in verse 14, James goes, Let me tell you like, what happens when someone fails a test. Okay, So check this out. He describes what happens. Verse 14 says, Each person is tempted. So the first thing that happens is you get a trial. And it could be anything. <clears throat> all kinds of stuff. We lose a job, we get sick, someone hurts us, our kid does something we don't want them to do. Trial. We always want to make trials these big things. We are in trials all the time. And we are being tempted all the time. Constantly. Because God is constantly shaping us. What are we going to do in the midst of that trial? Are we going to take control? Are we going to fight? Are we going to get angry? Are we going to trust God in that moment... Or are we going to try to do it our own way? The temptation comes at the same time as this trial and you have this decision to make. And it's not sinful to be tested and it's not sinful to be tempted. Just because you are tempted with lust or tempted with food, that's not sinful. Jesus was tempted all the time. In when he was beginning his ministry, he went out and was tempted directly by Satan. Huge temptations. In the Hebrews, it says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we've been tempted, yet without sin. So it's not sinful to be tempted. But what happens next? So we get this test, this trial. And a lot of times we'll start blaming the teacher for the test, right? Well, if you want to give me this test, I wouldn't have failed it. I had that experience as a teacher many times. Okay? What are you blaming me for the occasion? The occasion of the test is not the sin. What happens is, each person's tempted, and then it says we are lured and enticed by our own desires. As I said, God gives us desires. He gives us desires to eat, to have sex, to work hard, all these things. But these desires are not evil themselves, but sin makes them evil, even the good ones. Everyone, I shouldn't say everyone, a lot of people probably had a dad, some of you probably are, men that work way too much. You work hard. And that's a good thing to provide, but becomes an idol to you. Work was part of creation. God wanted men to work. Before the fall, He gave Adam a job. But what happens is sin comes and takes these good things. There's nothing wrong with what God has given us to eat and drink. There's nothing wrong with sex. But sin comes in and takes this thing God created and perverts it. And it becomes terrible. That's the power of sin. It's this, it's this internal problem we have that affects everything. We always think it's this external thing. No, it's an internal problem that destroys all that God created that was good. Tim Keller said it this way, Desire is not wanting bad things. It's wanting good things too badly. That's the desire. It's not wanting bad things. It's wanting good things too badly. So James uses a sex and a sport analogy here. Kind of like, for us guys, it's really good. Lured and enticed. Okay? Like a prostitute swinging her purse, showing some leg and calling to us, or a fish that is baited, whatever bait, and different baits for different fish, right? Shaken in front of us, and we are lured and we go for it. And what are we enticed or lured to do? This is the core of it. To believe the lie about God that comes with every temptation there is. That is, you need this to be happy and not Him. That's the core of the temptation. That you need this to be happy and not Him. And that comes from within. And we're like, and we're hooked. And then he says that desire, when it's conceived, it gives birth. So if we don't actively resist praying that we can fight this temptation, it will produce offspring. Once it's conceived, there's a process that started, and it's going to finish. James is trying to say sin is serious. This isn't like some little like, oh, I did something bad. So there are going to be consequences if these desires are not restrained. If we actively believe that lie about God and we actively indulge, we will become what he would describe as spiritually pregnant. And rebellion against God may not be immediately seen, but eventually it will give birth and sin will be born and you'll have a little family of sin with a bunch of little kids. Kids. This is my kid, Lust. Isn't he cute? This is my kid, Pride. This is my little kid anger over here. This is my little kid gossip. And for a while, when you have a little family of sin kids, you can hide them. Stick them in the closet. Stay away when the people are around, right? Keep them upstairs away when we've got people visiting. But eventually, those kids will grow up. James says, sin, once it's born and then it's fully grown, It brings forth death. Eventually, that little kid becomes an adult. And you can't hide adults very well. Okay? You can't tuck them away as easily. You can't control them like you can kids. And death will inevitably come. And it's all kinds of death. And you've seen it in your own life. You've seen it in the life of your friends. I've seen it in the life of mine and of your family where death destroys their family, the sin destroys their family, kills relationships, kills friendships, it kills everything in its path, especially a relationship with God. And the fact is, you are not powerful enough when it kills all that stuff to bring it back to life. James is not talking about an event or a test or a temptation. He's talking about a life that is either faithful or rebellious. And he warns his, his brothers here, because he's a pastor, he's talking to his brothers, and he's speaking specifically to those genuine Christians, the ones who truly say, I am saved, I believe that Jesus died for my sins because I am sinful and I could not save myself. I believe that His sacrifice was not as an example, but actually took my place. That he died the death I deserved and gave me the perfect life that he lived. People who actually confess that and believe that with all their heart. He says, don't be deceived. In verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. God is not to blame. That's what he's saying, don't be deceived by. God is not to blame in this situation. You are. And I am. The enemy is not only in the camp, it's within our hearts. Actually, it is our heart. It's this internal thing that, how are you going to fix your heart? How are you going to fix your heart? Answer, you can't. You can't. But we try to do that. We like try to go through all this kind of sin modification, pills, programs, all these things you can do to stop us from failing these tests when in fact there needs to be a spiritual solution for it. It's not external, it's internal. So how can we ever love God then when our hearts are breeding factories for sin? That's what he pretty much tells us. And so he says in the last verses, and we'll close with this, he reminds us how big our God is and that every good we need comes from him. He says, verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Every good we need, everything we need to be successful, everything we need to be faithful, everything we need to be pure is in God and comes from Him. And He is a good God and He does not change. They bring kind of creation language back. And the fact is that if we fail to love God, He doesn't fail to love us. If you fail to love God, if you stumble in your race, He does not give up on you. He does not change His mind halfway through the race and go, Well, you suck at running. Forget it. I'm moving on. He doesn't. He is more patient. Don't try to make Him out to be a man that you would give up on your kid. Because we do. It's very tempting. He would never give up on someone He's put into that race. Whether you stumble, whether you're slow, whether you decide to give up and walk off the track for a second, He's chasing you. And He is pulling you back because He has, and the cross proves it, He has an abiding interest in His kids. It's abiding. And as God is the, the greatest and most wonderful we might ever imagine, we don't give Him credit, we try to make Him out to be this creation, he has an abiding desire to see his children have joy. And so what does he say? What, how does he fix us? He says this. He brought us forth. He brought us forth, which is birth language, by his own will. He gives us new life. We can't give ourselves new life. We did not and cannot birth ourselves. In fact, the only thing we can birth is little sinful offspring, it seems. We did not choose God. He chooses us and saves us from death. So what it says. He, by His will, not by obligation, not by duty, by His good will and pleasure, He chooses. We are creation. He is the Creator. And He chooses to give us new life and take that heart of stone that continues to fail and give us a heart of flesh. And the beauty of that is this. That even... Though we struggle in our trials, okay, catch this, this is so important, because I know a lot of us are beating the snot out of ourselves for our faithlessness, for being maybe a bad employee, for being a bad husband or wife, for screwing up as a parent, for being faithless in whatever hardship God has given you. I know it's easy to start going, oh, I'm terrible. But if God is the one that birthed us and gave us birth, that's not something we can lose. If I'm just changing myself and modifying my own behavior, I can modify it the other way. But if God is changing my heart, it's not like I can take that heart of stone and give it back to me. We cannot lose what He has brought forth in us. But sin can't be fixed. and This is where you get that born-again language. It can't be fixed by changing anything. It has to be fixed by rebirth. And then it says he brought us forth by the word of truth. That rebirth happens by his word. Just like it did in creation. Where he said, let there be light. Boom! He spoke and there was light. 1 Peter one twenty three says it this way. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of unperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Our sin is not conquered by pills and by programs and PhDs. Okay? Sin is conquered by the Word of God. By the Word of God. The word, this, right here. The Word of God. It is powerful, it is transformational, and it is mysterious. But this is what changes someone, not a 12-step. doesn't mean that it won't be helpful, but it will not change a heart. No way. And I love the way Piper says it, and if you ever get... I don't even know where it is. I saw it on YouTube, I think. But here's how he said it. You never, ever, 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 I don't know how many he said, but a lot, ever, 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 outgrow the gospel. The fact that you are a sinner, the fact that you need transformation in your life because you are running after darkness. That is who we are. We kind of get the gospel and go, oh, well, those are good facts. Thanks for my fire insurance. And I'm, no. The gospel, the fact that we are sinful, the fact that God loves us enough to cover us and to purify us and to make us new is something we must preach to ourselves every single day. As we begin to fail, as we begin to question our chill everything, we never, ever, ever forget the gospel. That's the core. That is the Word of God. That is what has changed us. It is that thing that when you heard, for whatever reason, in that moment became the wisdom of God when it used to be the silliest story you've ever heard. That's the power of the Gospel. He brought us forth by the word of truth. And lastly, He brought us forth that we should be His first fruits. We are His handiwork. saved for the good works that He planned for us, according to Ephesians 2.8.9, actually verse 10. In the Old Testament, the fruits were what they always brought to God. They were God's belonging. God said the firstborn stuff is mine. The firstborn man, the firstborn cattle, the firstborn produce, the firstborn of their sales if they were a businessman. Everything was given to God. It was God's stuff. Our faith is built. We triumph over trials when we see and believe that we are holy, set apart, for God until we see Him again. We have something to do. We are not just the leftovers. We're not just the extras. But we have to act like that. When you actually believe that you are set apart and you are special, you have... you ever seen a kid, and I've seen it timeless times, you tell a kid who is struggling in high school and doesn't believe anything, you go, I'm proud of you. you got something special in you. That's what God says to us. And when you begin to believe that, you begin to live totally differently. And you begin to see other people differently. And you don't beat yourselves up when you stumble in a race or you run a soul lap or everyone else seems to be ahead of you. You finish the race, you get the exact same prize as the first guy. I don't know about you, I'm a little slower. There's some people that have been sprinting, you know, But I'm a little slower, but I know God is faithful. And I know He's walking along next to me like a coach going, I know that you are a really slow runner, Sam, and that you keep tripping, and sometimes you want to give up. But He's like, we're going to do this. I'm with you, man, because I chose you. And you're special, and you're set apart, and you need to believe it. Don't blame. It's okay to say you trip. It's okay to say you're slow. It's okay to say you're weak. But then you get your tail up and you start running. You start running. We take communion every Sunday. And today, I'm going to give you a trial to think about. Before you come into communion, I want you really to ask God to search your heart. To really ask Him to search your heart for whether you should take communion today or not whether you really believe in a God who's for you or if you're pointing your finger at God and blaming Him for things. If you really believe that God sends trials to mature you and to grow you and really believe that even though you can't understand it and doesn't make sense that God's really at work, okay, come and take communion. That's faith. But if you sit there and go, man, I'm just going through the routines I'm just doing this because, you know, they tell me to do this, whatever. No one's telling you to do it. That's why we don't pass the plate. You have to come up. No one's watching. No one cares between you and God. But if you're sitting on doubt of who God is, that's sin. If you're sitting on, you know, there may be people sitting here sitting on sin and stuff you're holding against people. That's sin. Confess and trust. Trust. And I pray that you'll begin to see your trials a little bit differently. Let's pray. Father God, I admit that I fail. We admit that we fail. And I also admit and confess, God, and I pray everyone here will confess that we blame the situation, other people, the devil, and you in particular for why we are where we are. And I ask Your forgiveness for doing that. I pray that You will open our eyes so we will begin to see things much larger with eternity in view. That we will not bring You down, but see how far You brought us up. Help us to confess our sins to You, Father, and to repent of our faithlessness. Help us to believe that You love us so much and to see the cross for what it is. In Your Son's blood we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond.